You're listening to the free, abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For March 8th, 2017, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. This is a very special episode of the Energy Transition Show, not just because it has an unusually wide range of interesting topics, but because our guest is an actual astronaut. Dr. Jay Apt is a professor of technology at Carnegie Mellon University's Tepper School of Business and Engineering and Public Policy and the director of the Carnegie Mellon Electricity Industry Center. He is an extensively published researcher on energy transition subjects with a background that includes study in experimental atomic physics, lasers, and energy technologies. He has worked at Harvard, MIT, California Institute of Technology, Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and NASA. Between 1991 and 1997, he made four spaceflights, spending over 35 days in space, including two spacewalks, and has flown around the Earth 562 times. Talk about an interesting perspective from which to contemplate our little blue ball and how important it is to protect it. But Dr. Apt has covered an enormous amount of ground here on Earth as well, with nearly 100 published papers to his name covering topics as diverse as wind farm performance and grid integration, storage technologies and battery performance, geoengineering, power characteristics of utility-scale solar, grid services and balancing, utility markets and structures, emissions management strategies, and many, many more. See the links in the show notes to start exploring all that. Now, in truth, I found it a little difficult to come up with a succinct theme for this show because we covered so many diverse topics. But I landed on getting from here to there because our discussion centered on what our goals should be for energy transition on the grid and some of the problems and solutions we'll encounter along the way to getting there. Plus, of course, a few questions at the end about what it's like to get way up there. Unfortunately, I was just starting to recover from a nasty cold I actually still have when we taped the interview, so I sounded pretty congested. But hopefully, the sound will still be legible. Then in the news segment, we'll discuss some important changes coming to the time of use schedules on the California grid as a consequence of its increased solar power production, the decision to close the Navajo Generating Station in Arizona, one of the largest coal plants in the country, the astonishing prices that came out of the latest solar auction in India, a new solar record that was set for the U.S. in 2016, and a great new series of articles about some big transmission projects getting underway that could transform the power grid of the American West. But first, our conversation with Dr. Jay Apt. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Jay, to the Energy Transition Show. Well, thank you for having me, Chris. So you've researched a bunch of topics that would be relevant to this show, so much so that I almost didn't even know where to start. And we'll link to your Google Scholar page and some of your specific papers in the show notes. But I think I'd like to start by diving straight into the deep end here and talk about how we can integrate increasing amounts of renewable power on the grid economically without risking grid stability. Sound good? Sure. And of course, you know that in the U.S., 
we currently have about 6% wind and solar. I don't count biomass as necessarily renewable. That's an issue over which reasonable people can differ. But that in Germany, they've got 22% wind and solar. So going from 6 to 22 is a large enough increase that we've got a lot of headroom here in the U.S. Indeed, and if you incorporate biomass and some of the other types of renewables in Germany, they're closer to a third of their power. They have 9% biomass, and as I say, that's an issue uh, over which reasonable people can differ. They've only got 4% hydro, whereas we have 6%. Yeah. All right, so let's start with grid balancing, which we've discussed quite a bit on this show. We discussed the role of storage in wholesale markets in Episode 8 with Jason Berwin of the Energy Storage Association. In Episode 29, we talked with Christopher Clack of NOAA about how a network of HVDC transmission lines could smooth out a lot of the variability and allow us to integrate more renewable power on the grid. And in Episode 27, Marissa Humman discussed some of her research at NREL on how different technologies like storage demand response, rooftop solar, controlled dispatch, and so on, can play various roles in grid balancing. Now, you've done a good deal of research on various aspects of this question, particularly on the variability of wind, which I want to discuss in a moment. But let's start with this. What would your vision of an optimal 21st century renewably powered grid look like at this point? I mean, I assume it's not the typical brain-dead vision of a bunch of wind turbines and solar panels sitting around idle two-thirds of the time with a fleet of baseload plants sitting around ready to meet 100% of peak demand at all times. In the U.S., as I said, we've got a lot of headroom for wind and solar, and let's remember we're 16% of the way through the 21st century already. And these things take a while to build and they have a long lifetime. We do still have 20% nuclear, which is dropping, and we're unlikely to even keep our existing nuclear market share. So I must say I'm more of a pessimist than I was some years ago about how clean the grid is going to be by mid-century. My own view is that we are shifting from coal to gas, and as you know, we've just had an announcement yesterday as we're recording this, that the large Navajo 2.25 gigawatt coal-fired station in Arizona is to be shut down by 2019. So there is some progress in shifting from coal to gas. And we do have, as I say, a factor of three or four that we can easily increase our renewables without worrying about giant storage plants and so forth. So I think we will have a modest increase that may, may keep up with the retirements of nuclear to keep our grid about as clean as it is now. But I must say I'm getting increasingly pessimistic about our abilities to do deep decarbonization of the grid. Where is your concern rooted there? Do you think that the grid balancing is just going to become a problem if we get to some percentage of variable renewables or or what? No, I don't think it is a technical issue. You had Chris Clack on your show, and Chris's very rigorous work has shown that you can get three-quarters renewables if you're willing to put in a fair amount of transmission without significant difficulties, and there are tricks you can do, consolidating balancing areas and so forth. No, it's a 
political question and one that I see us having some difficulty with at both the national level and in some states. Ohio, as you know, under perhaps the most moderate Republican to run in the primary, Kasich, paused, as they call it, their renewable portfolio standard last year. And RPSs are under the gun in a number of other states. On the other hand, there are states that get it, like California and a few others, Hawaii, that are moving in a very aggressive manner to increase renewables. So I think we'll see action at the state level and we'll have an increasingly bifurcated country into ones that get it and ones that don't. All right. So 10 years ago, you published a very well-cited paper on how to smooth out the fluctuations of wind turbines and found that conventional answer to variable wind power, building a fast ramping natural gas peaker plant that can provide 100% of the output of the wind farm, would not actually be a very economical approach, and that a portfolio of energy storage, demand response, and other generators would actually be a much better match to the periods of low wind output because fast responding resources like batteries are good for smoothing out variability in short periods of time, like minutes smaller gas plants would be appropriate to matching longer periods like days of low wind output. But you also found that just grouping some wind farms together can also provide some smoothing. Can you talk a little bit about that? We know that geographic smoothing of wind is significant, and it depends on the time frame that you're talking about. We can smooth out 95% of the fluctuations of wind at periods of like an hour or less than that, simply by geographically grouping, let's say, all the plants in Texas together. Now, the difficulty is that the large and deep fluctuations that happen at times that are much longer than that, 12 hours or a day, are much harder to smooth out. And you can smooth out only about half of the fluctuations at those long time periods, which as I say, are most of the fluctuations by grouping wind. So that while you can smooth out the fast fluctuations pretty well, you only can smooth out, you know, half or so of the big ones, even by large geographic grouping. So you are going to have to have things like storage or fast ramping gas plants or even demand response that are able to absorb those other fluctuations. But you pointed out that grouping wind farms together can also do some smoothing. Is that right? Well, that's that's what I mean. Grouping the wind farms together provides geographic smoothing, not physically grouping them together. That's counterproductive. What you want to do is electrically group geographically dispersed wind plants together so that you have wind in West Texas that dies off at the same time that wind around Corpus Christi on the Barrier Islands increases. And that helps. Gotcha. You know, Christopher Clack, speaking of which, had also done some interesting modeling about the spacing of wind turbines within a wind farm, trying to optimize the production of the total farm by taking into account the effects of the turbulence behind each turbine, and found that the way we're spacing turbines within a wind farm now is not really that effective, that we should be putting them at different heights and at different distances. Have you looked into that question at all? That's a huge area of research in Europe and has been for a decade. Charles Menvo at Johns Hopkins is perhaps the most advanced in the U.S. 
doing that, and he does a lot of wind tunnel studies, there has been a great deal of experimental work done on the Horns Rev wind park, as they call it in Europe, which is a rectangular offshore grid off Denmark, where they have reduced the amount of power extracted from the wind in the first row of turbines, the upwind row, right. to increase the total available power in the wind park. Right. And there are many other folks who are working on that. That can get you uh, a few percent in the capacity factor of the wind farm, which is significant. Wow, turbulence and fluid dynamics are just so complicated, aren't they? Well, you know, there's lots of great quotes about that, but computational fluid dynamics works pretty well. But even at this advanced stage of our CFD work, wind tunnels are still required to do a lot of the uh, real truthing of the CFD models. So I can't let you leave without asking you about this. You are the only actual astronaut I've ever talked to that I may ever talk to. So I just have to ask you this. You know, I just think that looking down on our little blue ball from space, especially if you're concerned about sustainability and the future of humanity, it must give you a pretty different perspective on things. It must be just a profound experience. Can you tell us what that was like? It is the best thing that you can do out there and look out the window and just watch the planet go by. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. The full episode covers much more. In order to hear the rest, point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and become a member. We're extending our launch special through the end of March, so monthly subscriptions are priced at just $5 a month, the same price as our annual subscriptions, which are $60 a year. And you can keep that monthly rate as long as you remain a subscriber, just 5 bucks a month. So be sure to join before March 31st when the monthly price for the subscription increases to $10. It's like subscribing to your favorite magazine or newspaper, but we prefer to think of it as buying us a pint once a month as a way of saying thanks. And for those who don't want to sign up for a recurring payment plan, you can also just buy a single episode for just $7. Look for the Buy Single Episode button on the page for that show. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be. So if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. So please join us today and support our advertising-free show featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. According to a story by the always excellent Jeff St. John at GTM, California's big three utilities will be filing general rate cases this year based on time-of-use schedules that are nearly the inverse of the old time-of-use schedules. For a brief bit of background... Before solar became a major midday power source in California, the most expensive peak pricing on a TOU schedule was always in the middle of the day, when the demand was highest and expensive natural gas peaker plants had to be fired up to meet it. Now, Southern California in particular frequently has enough solar power to drive prices to their lowest levels in the midday. To recognize this new reality, the utilities have produced new TOU schedules. For example, the expensive on-peak hours will now be from 4 p.m. to 9 p.m. instead of from noon to 6 in SCE and SDG&E territory, 
and 5 p.m. to 10 p.m. in PG&E territory. The cheap, super off-peak period will now be from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. in the winter months for SEE, noon to 2 p.m. on weekends for SDG&E, and 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. in the spring season in PG&E territory. Now, all that makes perfectly good sense from a rate design standpoint, but it also means that net meters solar customers will earn considerably less for their midday power production. The drop could be as much as 15 to 20 percent in San Diego, or 20 to 40 percent for certain PG&E customers. Kevin Weinberg of Baker Electric is quoted as saying the reduction could, quote, put a lot of customers underwater with their power purchase agreements, leases, loans, and property assessed clean energy assessments, end quote in SDG&E territory. Now, to avoid pulling a Nevada, the CPUC has offered to soften the blow by grandfathering existing solar customers, allowing them to remain on their existing TOU schedules for up to five years for residential systems and up to 10 years for commercial, industrial, and institutional systems. See the link in the show notes for more details on this story, but note, this is likely to be a taste of things to come for any place where solar is becoming a significant power source. Item two, as Jay mentioned in the interview, the 2.2 gigawatt coal-fired Navajo generating station near Page, Arizona will be closed when its lease expires at the end of 2019. The majority owner of the plant, the Salt River Project, made the decision to close it on economic grounds, saying that it was simply more expensive than natural gas-fired power. And that the well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.